What does it take to build a movement that's truly led by families? Today, many in philanthropy say they believe in movement building. Marguerite Casey Foundation has been committed to it with a clear strategy for two decades. It is at the core of the foundation's mission to nurture a national movement of low-income families advocating on their own behalf for economic and social justice. This is The Revolution Will Be Local, a movement-building podcast. In this podcast, grassroots leaders and families tell stories from their lives about how Marguerite Casey Foundation approaches movement-building with families at the center, how it supports low-income and working families and their allies, advancing public policies, fighting for solutions, and leading. It's about building collective power among low-income families and their communities, building that power by working together across issues, race, gender, ethnicity, geography, and egos. You'll hear directly from the true experts of poverty, families, and grassroots organizers about how they are building their movement. In their stories, you'll hear how the foundation measures progress in five distinct ways. Infrastructure, leadership development, networks, public policy, and impact on families. And you'll hear why it works. In our opening episode, you will meet Johnny Waller, a grassroots leader from Kansas City, Missouri, and hear how his growth as an advocate for policies based on the ideas and experiences of families led to a breakthrough in Missouri. My name is Johnny Waller. I'm involved in everything from homicides on the street to helping to bring soccer to Kansas City, anything in between. I help ex-offenders have a clear path forward, like I did. I was released from prison in Omaha, Nebraska. I got out of prison with $43, and I didn't have any clothes or anything, so I had on my prison-issued uniform, and they gave me one day to move to Kansas City, so it was just really a tough time when I got out of prison. I ended up applying for like 175 jobs in maybe a month's time. I didn't get a job. I tried to go to school, and they wouldn't allow me to go to school because I had drug convictions and wasn't eligible for any benefits because I was a convicted felon. So I never went to high school. I think I went to high school maybe 18 days or something like that. And I received my GED in prison. And subsequently, I started teaching the GED class in prison. And they had told me, oh, you can get out and you can go to college and get a degree and start a career. And none of that was true. And they told me I, I can get benefits like everybody else. Comes to find out, no housing, no food stamps, no education, and no job. But that's not what they told me. Like, I was really thinking my life is going to change, but I, it just reverted back to the same thing because I couldn't get anything. My mom went to the local gas station, and she literally begged the guy to give me a chance. He ended up saying, well, I'll give him a chance to work at the cash register. I think it was making like $7.50 an hour. Once I got the job, things started looking up for me. I was like, okay, I'm working. I made a dollar thirty-one in a day in prison, so seven fifty an hour is a lot better than a dollar thirty-one. I worked at the gas station for a couple of years, and, and then I, I met this guy named Jimmy Woodley. He owns a local cleaning company here called Woodley Building Maintenance, and we had a conversation. He was like, "Well, Johnny, why do you want to work for me?" And I'm like, "Well, I, you know, I need a job." And he's like, "Well, no." 
you can start your own company. I'm like, well, I'm a felon. Like, no, I can't. He's like, yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. I said, okay, I'm going to try. He didn't tell me how to do it. He just told me, hey, look here, look here, look here. And I did. And next thing you know, he said, uh, I'll give you your first contract. I'll let you subcontract. And I said, okay. And after that, things really took off. Um, it afforded me a nice lifestyle. I was able to employ people here in Kansas City. And I owned a janitorial company for seven years. I had a kid. It was my first kid, and I was really nervous. I never met him before, so I don't know if I could love him the way he's supposed to be loved. And then given my background and everything, so I was really concerned about having a kid. And then he came, and he was like the love of my life. I'm like, oh, my God. Never loved anybody as much as I, I love my child. He caught what we thought was a cold. So we ended up taking him to Children's Mercy Hospital. The next morning, someone called and said, hey, you need to bring him back. The x-ray technician seen something that probably shouldn't be there. And he had an additional scan and, hey, you need to sit down. We think he has cancer. And I'm like, cancer? He's two. Two years old don't get cancer. And then it turns out he has stage four high-risk neuroblastoma. And I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, so he can get treatment. If it was your life, wouldn't you want somebody to do the best they can for you, despite how much it costs or what they'll lose? That's my son. I love him. So whatever we got to do is whatever we got to do. So he was on a constant IV, and he was on chemo. He couldn't eat fast food, so you had to cook fresh food and healthier food, which is expensive. That part was really left up to the individual. I couldn't get assistance for my son because I was a convicted felon, because I sold drugs when I was 18 years old. That was at least a decade ago. Like, okay, you don't want to feed me, that's cool. But I have a child who's sick, he has cancer. Like, he needs to eat. You mean to tell me since I committed a crime that my child can't eat? Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. Had surgery, uh, 16 rounds of chemotherapy, had a bone marrow transplant, it didn't work. He passed away five days before his fourth birthday. I was having a hard time dealing with burying my child. And things had to start all over again. Started looking for a job again. And, of course, I ran into the same thing that I ran into the first time. It's, we don't hire convicted felons. I went to a local organization that worked with ex-offenders to go through their job training program. And that job that I got when I went through that jobs training program, I ended up being a facilitator there. And then I ended up moving up. Eventually, I ran the day-to-day -day operations of the nonprofit. Got me into doing community work, community organizing, and becoming a community leader. Gamilio is an organization that helps train organizers, right? So just for example, since I operate in this space, uh, ex-offender. So if you're like an ex-offender and you say, hey, we need to get people to vote or, hey, uh, we need to change some of the state statutes or we need to start organizing people around things that affect our population, they offer training to become an organizer, network connections, then they offer like leadership so you can be a community organizer and be able to lead other people. The individuals affect their family, which affects the community, right? Once you take somebody like me 
and provide them the necessary skills and trainings, it naturally passes off. It really engages the whole family, and that family is able to go out and engage the whole community. No food stamps. This is one of the remnants from the, the war on drugs. Not only did that happen to me, I ran that nonprofit, and some of those people were eating out of the trash can, and they would come to me like, how can I get assistance to eat? And I'm like, you can't. You sold drugs, so there's nothing that we could do about it. What I did not know at that time was it was going to be a six-year-long fight. I thought it was going to be, hey, we get in there, we organize some folks, we change the legislation, bam. That is not how that went. I could tell you what the legislators were They kept saying, if you have a drug problem, they'll use their food stamps to buy drugs. They kept perpetuating the same story. So year after year, we would go down there and give testimony. They allowed me to really, really speak. I was able to explain to them why that opposition, why that's not practical, why that does not work. It's treated like expert testimony now. And I had to tell them, like, hey, listen, that's not true. I sold drugs for a long time. You can't buy rims. Like, people buy rims and and put music in their car and put TVs in their car. You can't do that with food stamps. Like, there's no drug dealer waiting around like, hey, let me see your food stamp card so I can go buy some $2,000 rims. Like, (laughs) the rim shop don't even take food stamps. Once they started really listening, that particular point was a real turning point in our effort. It really changed the course and the momentum of the movement for us to go ahead and push that through. They finally passed it. It took six years, but somebody woke up and they could eat. They could go get assistance and feed themselves and feed their families. So it was a good win. People create narratives to fit into some of the things that they believe. That does not make them true. Once you sit down with someone and you finally realize, like, hey, this person knows what they're talking about, let's go ahead and listen, then we can start to dispel some of these myths that's been created through a friend's story or, or something you read or some movie you watch because people do it all the They do it about prison. It's like, oh, I've seen that thing on Oz, Johnny. Does that happen in prison? Bro, that was written by HBO writers. <laughs> that is not how prison works. That's not true. Let's stick with the facts. The fact is, that's not how it operates. And this is how it operates. And once they became accepting of that, then the narrative and the course can start to change because then we're talking about facts. Facts is, people like me who sell drugs, I never even bought anybody's food stamps when I sold drugs because they had children and we didn't want to take away food out of some kid's mouth. So that's the reality. In Gamelia's instance, they hold training for you to be able to take your power back, right? The power is in the people. Um, Sometimes you don't know it or you don't know how far you can take it. These are the things that they teach you because you have to organize people and you have to organize money. And some of us, we want to do things, but we don't know exactly how to do that. And then you're like, oh, okay. Well, how do I do the work? Well, here's some training, here's some networking, here's some ideas. You can take you and it matriculates down to your family. And then next thing you know, you've created this like movement, much like 
what we're doing now in Kansas City. You create this movement of change, and then you start to bring everybody on board. I have hope that we as a people can do better. We can treat each other with dignity, love, respect. We can have some type of mutual understanding and things can get better. It did take six years for the food stamp bill. It was a long fight. You know, the old saying persistence pays off. It's being persistent. Let's see what we can do because we have been able to make change. That's what's really important. And when other people can see that change, it gives other people hope that things can be better. Yes, we have a lot of work to do, but I believe being a change agent, that's what it, it takes work. So I keep hope alive, keep inspired. In my own story, I went from a drug dealer, gang member. I got shot in the head. I shot some people. Before my son passed away, I told him I would go back and finish college. So I went to college. I watched all of us make changes in the world, and and we need that. Can't give up. It's you know, it just inspires me to fight a little bit harder. You know, it started with me and then my kids and then my son watches what I do. So he he's constantly telling me how he's going to be better than I was. And, I, you know, I'm like, yeah, because I ended up having another son, too. So I tell him, yeah, son, you, you know, you could change the world. You watch your daddy do something. So, of course, you can do it. And then I get my mom involved. As a matter of fact, when you talk about family, She's the general manager of a local hotel here on the plaza. And so now she's like, well, if returning citizens need a job, then I have a place for them. You're able to help in your own way. And in her case, it was able to provide jobs. That trickles down to that particular family and those kids because the lifestyle starts to change. So when you think about that family being in poverty, uh, much like I was, and they're like, well, you you pulled yourself out. Yeah, so we can all come. And then you start pulling the community with you. We're able to, to pull in individuals, families, the community. That affects the city that we live in, and hopefully the things that we do affect the nation that we live in. I consider this boots-on-the-ground organizing, <laughs> like, that's what we're doing. We're out there in people's face every day asking for change. I understand being in a cycle of poverty. I understand being a returning citizen. I understand feeling hopeless, helpless. I've been hungry, starving, slept in a park bench. I slept in a car. Well, I even slept on a church door one day, like that time where I felt like going back to prison was easier. There's nothing that I can do. And so now... I would say that there is. There is things that you can do. You just, you don't know. Or in that space, we have a lack of opportunity and a lack of access for anybody to even show us that. And now we have people out here that can show us that. So my message to the people would be, you hold the power within you. Now, you may need help from someone else to draw it out. You may need some guidance or assistance to see what that looks like and where you may fit in, but you always have the power within you to make change. That's a beautiful thing because most people are going to try to tell you that your voice is just one in a million and no one can listen, but your one voice 
can turn into two, can turn into five, can turn into 20, can turn into 100. And then you can start to change things. And if you look at empirically throughout history, if you look at Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., they weren't the richest people. Gandhi was broke, actually. I mean, he didn't have any money. But they were able to use that voice to have a collective voice and a unified people, and that sparked change. So, yeah, your situation could be bad. My situation was bad. A lot of people's situation is bad. You still have the power to change something. You do. The Revolution Will Be Local, a movement-building podcast, has been brought to you by the Marguerite Casey Foundation. Our strategy is to nurture a national movement of low-income families advocating on their own behalf for social and economic justice. For two decades, Marguerite Casey Foundation has championed the power of movement building, allocating resources to cornerstone organizations through multi-year general support that has helped them build a movement that spans regions, issues, ethnicities, demographics, and generations. To learn more about the foundation and its work, please visit caseygrants.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to leave us a rating or a review.